Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. This morning we have a fascinating passage, quite interesting, as the Lord places his call on Elisha's life. 1 Kings 19, verses 19 through 21. Remember, beloved, these are, these are the very written words of God. So he, Elijah, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, a couple months ago, I came across a very interesting video in in this video feed that I'm on. I guess it's called YouTube, for those of you who have heard of it. I'm not sure why I called it a video feed. (laughs) At any rate, I was on YouTube doing a little surfing, and a video popped up that made quite a claim. There was a medical practitioner that was making a claim that total cholesterol is not associated with heart disease, which seemed kind of shocking to me. It said, total cholesterol not associated with an increase in heart disease, which piqued my interest because the Raymen in our family, we have kind of a predisposition toward high total cholesterol. And so, at least myself, my boy's not yet, but have been on, I've been on a statin drug for a few years now, to lower it, so it was of interest to me, and the medical practitioner on that basis had taken his wife off statin drugs, her cholesterol had gone through the roof, and he was fine with it, okay? And so after looking at this, I was like, something about that does not seem right, okay? I have never heard that before, total cholesterol not associated with increased heart disease or anything like that. So I found another video. This video, this doctor had lots of credentials. He was a medical doctor. He had his PhD. He was an expert in reading these kinds of studies. And so someone had asked him to evaluate the claims made by the first medical practitioner. It's very helpful. So in this video, he finds the American Heart Association study in 2018 that the first medical practitioner was going off of. He said, let's pull it up. Let's highlight the sections. And he's reading the 2018 American Heart Association study, and he starts highlighting the appropriate sections. He goes, now I can see the problem. He said the medical practitioner in the first video did not realize that the cholesterol, the total cholesterol that was being spoken of in this 2018 American Heart Association video, the kind of cholesterol that was being referred to there was dietary cholesterol, not blood serum cholesterol. 
And so dietary cholesterol is the kind of cholesterol related to the food that you eat, okay? And the person, the medical practitioner, had totally misunderstood and thought that the American Heart Association was saying that total serum cholesterol is not associated with heart disease. Now that is a major, major misunderstanding. And he explained that this medical practitioner's wife very much needed to be concerned about her total heart serum cholesterol level. And so he was pointing out, it's amazing how just a small misunderstanding, something taken out of context, something seemingly insignificant, taken out of context, can lead to serious error. And I submit to you that that dynamic has been, um, I have observed that dynamic at play with the passage before us. People make a small interpretational error, and therefore they apply it in ways that it shouldn't be applied, and God's people oftentimes feel great guilt after passages like this are preached and taught. So I want to understand, I want to understand what in the world this passage would have meant to the original reading audience. And that is highly, highly um, suggestive of obviously what that would have meant for them and then how it should be interpreted and applied to us. So the question for us to consider this morning is what would the call of Elisha have meant to the original reading audience? That's what I want us to consider as we look at the passage today. Okay, so the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, to whom were those books written? Those books were written to the people of God as they left Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land. So Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament to teach the people of God how they were to live in the land that God was giving them. That's the context of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Who's the reading audience, the original reading audience of First and Second Kings? Very important to understand that. The book of First and Second Kings was written to God's people in exile at the end of their exilic period. Would anyone here know the approximate date for that? You probably do. I'm sure you do. It's around 536 B.C. So about 536 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, God's people have spent 70 years in Babylon. God is preparing them for their return back to the land. And so the book of First and Second Kings is written. And First and Second Kings was written to teach them how to live in the land that God was giving back to them, okay? The book of First and Second Kings was to teach the people of God not to make the same mistakes that had been made by generations of Israelites who had lived in the land. First and Second Kings was to teach the people of God to learn from their past, okay? What's interesting is, the writer of 1 Kings gives us details about Elisha's call that he does not give us about Elijah's call. So based on what you can remember, 
What were some of the details of Elijah's call to ministry? Oh, we don't get any. Elijah just shows up out of nowhere and goes and confronts Ahab. Elisha, though, when he's called, we get specific details about that call. That's a cue to the reader that we should take note of the specifics of Elisha's call. There's something there for us to learn from. Let's look at this call. Okay, 1 Kings 19, verse 19. So Elijah departed from there. Where was there? If you were here last week, that was Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Remember, after Jezebel threatened Elijah's life, he got out of Dodge, okay? And he made a beeline straight for Mount Horeb, where Elijah had an encounter with God. And Elijah felt like I and I only, I'm the only one left. The Lord encouraged Elijah, you're not the only one left. I have 7,000 people I've reserved who will not bow the knee to Baal, and I've got a job for you to do, if you remember. He gave him three specific tasks. Go anoint Haziel, king of Syria. Go anoint Jehu, king of Israel. Go anoint Elisha as your successor. And so, following that, Elijah, he's obedient. He goes and anoints Elisha. Look at verse 19. So Elijah departed from there. He's departed from Mount Sinai. He comes back to the land. And he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Okay, so in the ancient Near East, the Sherlock Holmes of his day in the ancient Near East would have immediately inferred from this that Elisha was the son of a very wealthy and prosperous landowner. How can we infer that from just these few verses? How does it describe Elisha? It says he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was what? Who was with 12 yokes of oxen, but what does it say? Who were in front of him. Okay, then there's repetition, and he was with what? The 12th. That would have indicated to the original reader that Elisha was the son of the owner of these oxen. So to have 12 teams of oxen, that would have been 24 oxen. Okay? Elisha would have been the owner of these oxen. This would have been incredibly expensive in the ancient Near East. Okay, how else do we know that Elisha was the owner of the oxen and all the equipment? Well, these were his to burn. Later, after he goes back to his family, he returns to follow Elijah. What does he do? He throws a going away party where he sacrifices all of the oxen to feed everybody in town. And what does he use as fuel for the sacrifice, he uses the wooden yokes. Those would have been incredibly expensive in the ancient Near East. He used those wooden yokes and the plows as fuel, as fire for the sacrifice. So the ancient Near, East, ancient Near Eastern reader would have read verse 19 and understood that Elisha was a very wealthy person. The text continues... Elijah, 
passed by him, passed by Elisha, and cast his cloak on him. And so that was this ancient Near Eastern way of saying, you're going to be my successor. You're going to follow me. This is when the calling was placed. The invitation was given. And obviously in the text, Elisha knew that that's what was being communicated here. Verse 12, and he, Elisha, left the oxen and ran after Elijah. He knew exactly what was being communicated. And he said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. In other words, let me go home and say goodbye, and then I'm yours. And he, Elijah, said to him, go back again. The Hebrew here is a little difficult. And he, Elijah, said to Elisha, go back again. In other words, go home. And then there's this kind of enigmatic question, for what have I done to you? Now, if you looked at other translations, it's probably go home and consider the calling that I've placed on you. Go home and prayerfully consider the in invitation I have extended to you. Elijah did not know at this point if Elisha would, go, would come back. And so he's saying, go home, say goodbye to your parents, and ponder carefully what's been done for you. Okay, the text doesn't imply that it was inappropriate for Elisha to go home and say goodbye. Look at verse 21. Elisha is a man of his word. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. So he's, he's throwing this going away party. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Okay? And so this was Elisha's way of burning the ships, if you will, to, to borrow a metaphor for um, Cortez. When he came to Mexico, it said that he, that he burned the ships. That was indicative to his men, we're all in. There's no going back, you know. Um, he, he's pushing the chips to the table if that's an appropriate metaphor to use in church. So he's basically saying, I'm selling everything. I'm giving all my money away. There's no going back. I'm all in with you, Elijah. I'm going to be your successor. I'm going to be your assistant. So back to the initial question. Why in the world did the writer of 1 Kings include all the details of this call and not say a word about Elijah's call. What was in the details of this call that was pertinent or relatable to the original reader? What were they to glean from this? Sometimes, I mean, one of the, one of the great things about the Protestant Reformation, one of the wonderful things, is that the Bible was translated into the language of the people. No longer was the Bible only being read and taught by clergy. Martin Luther and others translated the Bible into the language of the people, and that, along with the invention of the printing press, exploded people's access to the Word of God. 
Okay? And so the word of God was put into the hands of the people. One of the challenges with that is that um, even though the Bible, the, the, the essentials of the Bible can be understood by everyone. Okay, we call this the perspicuity of Scripture. The essential truths of the Bible can be read and understood by everyone. And that's a wonderful thing. But not all of the Bible is, you know, is equally understandable to all. Okay, so the 21st century reader would come to this text and say that I'm inferring from this that I need to burn my yokes, that I need to sacrifice my oxen, and I need to go all in and be a prophet of God. And I should feel horribly guilty if I don't. And so oftentimes, people can come to texts like this, and we're going to get into even when Jesus was physically, literally calling some disciples with very language similar to this, okay? And people read into these texts that God is placing on me the exact same call that's being issued here. And so I would submit to you that people have misinterpreted texts like these and they have languished in their jobs and their vocations feeling a sense of guilt because they haven't burned everything and left everything to go into vocational ministry. And so I'm doing a job, but it's a lesser job. You know, um, texts like this, people often feel like is, is, is calling them to go into overseas missions work. And if I'm not willing to do that, if I don't, if I don't sacrifice all my oxen and, and burn all my yokes, then I'm, I'm not, I'm a second-class Christian. That is not what this text means. What would this text have meant to the original reader? When everyone came back, when the thousands of Jews came back to the promised land, they would not have read this and felt like they were supposed to be Elijah's apprentice. So then, what does it mean? Well, it was Elisha's willingness to give up his incredibly wealthy and prosperous lifestyle to follow God's call, okay? It was going to be a comparison from a lesser to a greater. If Elisha was willing to give up all that and faithfully serve God, then I can faithfully serve God where I am when he takes me back to the promised land. You know, the people of God had been unfaithful to his word for hundreds of years prior to the Lord taking them off into captivity. The point of this, if Elisha could do this, if he sh could show this kind of sacrificial faithfulness to God's word in these big ways, surely I can be faithful to God when I come back to the land in the ways that God has called me to live in my vocation, tending my fields, caring for my family, okay? That was the point to the original reader, the Jews who were reading these books after they got back to the land. It was to convict them and encourage them to live for the Lord in their station. 
But even as I listen to sermons this week, preparing for this, oftentimes teachers go straight from this text to Luke chapter 9, when, Luke, when Jesus is literally calling his disciples, and there's a situation where Jesus is literally calling a particular man, and the man says, let me what? Let me say goodbye to my father and mother, and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus rebukes him. And Jesus says, no man who sets his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit to serve in the kingdom of God. And so innumerable Christians have read that and have felt guilty that they haven't left everything to go serve in the interior of Africa or somewhere else like that, which that's, just a, that's a wonderful place to serve. Question for you. In Jesus' itinerant preaching ministry, was he calling everyone as individuals to leave their house and literally follow him in his itinerant ministry, yes or no? I'm, I, I don't hear you. Of course not. Of course not. He had three of his most inner intimate disciples, and then he had nine others. He had the 12, who were both disciples and what? And apostles. And then you had the 70, who are disciples. I would say with maybe an uppercase D. And then there were others, disciples, who were, you know, living and working and serving Christ where they were. Now, now let me be clear. Jesus does call all people to take up their cross and follow him, to die to the unchristian life that they would have lived to follow him. But you can be a disciple um, where, where you live, work, and play without like burning everything and leaving everything for full-time vocational ministry. And, and unfortunately, if these nuances aren't communicated, people can read texts like these and feel like I am a second-class citizen. Not all Christians are called to go into full-time vocational ministry. We are all called to be disciples of Jesus. Okay? That's an important distinction. What did this passage mean to the original Jew coming back to the promised land? If Elisha can be faithful here, you can be faithful to the word of God where you are. A comparison to a lesser, from a lesser to a greater. What does it mean in the new covenant? In light of the Lord Jesus Christ, it means we should look at the example of Jesus who sacrificed everything. He gave his life for you and me. If Jesus was willing to be obedient to God's call in his life, then certainly we can be faithful by the power of his spirit, to trust him and love him and serve him where we are. That's what this text means. We should look to the example of Elisha, a man who had so much to lose, gave up everything 
to serve and follow Elijah. And, and Elisha knew that that was probably, you know, signing up for his own death. Because Elijah was enemy number one in Israel. And to take on his cloak and to take on his mantle was probably to follow God to the death. If Elisha can do that, then we can serve him where we live, work, and play. If the Lord Jesus can give everything for you and me, then we can follow him faithfully where we live, work, and play. I've told you this before. I can't tell you how many people have come to me over the years and have confessed to me that they feel guilty in whatever job that they're doing, that they feel like that that's somehow a sellout or a cop-out, that if they really love Jesus, they would give everything away and go serve him full-time. And that would be a misunderstanding of God's call. God's, the calling of God in the new covenant is primarily a calling unto salvation. To take up your cross and to follow him. To serve him as his disciple. Now there's a fascinating verse um, in 1 Thessalonians 4. Like the apostle Paul certainly wasn't teaching everyone in the churches that he planted and wrote to leave everywhere and follow him on his various missionary endeavors. In fact, the passage that I'm going to read to you now is shocking to people. In 1 Thessalonians 4, here's what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. He writes, leave everything and sell everything and go overseas, and that's the only way to serve God. No, that's not what he said. Paul wrote, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. Wait, what? Mind your own business and work with your hands just as I told you? In other words, love Christ Mind your own business. Don't disturb the peace and unity of the church. Work with your hands. Work hard where you are so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. I want to encourage you. You can be a missionary for Jesus exactly where you are. For Sam Jarvis to be the best banker he can be is an amazing testimony for Jesus Christ. Just by Sam Jarvis being where he is, the aroma of Christ is emanating from him. Paul Kruger, the same way. Kevin, the same way. God is glorified not just by ministers who preach and teach full-time. He is glorified when Jack Meacham's works to God's glory in his context. Don't read these texts and feel guilty that you're not in full-time ministry. You, you are where you are. It just looks different 
for different people. What a privilege we have to serve Christ as his disciples where we live, work, and play. Look to the example of Elisha. If that man could do that, if he could leave everything to serve the true and living God where he was, certainly I can do that where I am. And may the Holy Spirit empower you and empower me to fulfill our respective callings. Amen and amen. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and praise you for this text and for what it would have meant to the original readers. Father, I pray that we would feel conviction. I pray that we would be encouraged and emboldened because of Elisha's example. Here is a a, a wealthy, prosperous landowner who was willing to leave everything in his former way of life to follow God's call and be Elijah's assistant and later successor. Father, as we look to the ultimate example of the Lord Jesus, who literally gave everything to be obedient to God's calling in his life, Father, may may his example serve as a powerful example to us, that if the Lord Jesus could do that in those ways, then certainly I can be faithful in the smaller ways and the smaller contexts of our life and my life. If, I, if the disciples could do what they did, then certainly I can live a quiet and faithful life and work with my hands and, and be faithful in my context. Holy Spirit of the living God, Lord Be faithful and empower the work of our hands. As our our young moms raise these covenant children, empower them, equip them, enable them. Lord, make the work of their hands fruitful. Draw our children to yourselves at the places where our men and women are working and serving May the aroma of Jesus Christ emanate in those places. May people be drawn to the true and living God on the tennis court, at at the banking centers, in in the operating room, everywhere. Use us, Lord Jesus, as faithful examples of followers of the Lord Jesus. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.